0: Hello, hello, I'm Rob Wolf, and I'm glad you're taking some time out of your busy schedule to join me for an episode of new books in science fiction and fantasy, where you get to spend some time with authors, to hear what they're thinking, learn a little about what they're writing, and hopefully get some insight into what makes them tick. Today, we're stepping lightly into the fantasy realm, and I say lightly because my guest today, Porochista Kakpor, has written a book, The Last Illusion, that isn't a traditional fantasy book with queens and wizards and empires to be won or lost, but it is fantastical in many ways, and like many fantasy books, it's inspired by classic legend. This is Ms. Kakpor's second novel, her first, Sons and Other Flammable Objects, was a New York Times editor's choice. Her nonfiction has been widely published, and she's taught writing at lots of top-notch colleges and universities. And I'm super glad, after a few scheduling postponements, that we finally have a chance to talk. So welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, let's dive in. The main character in The Last Illusion, Zal, shares a name and many characteristics with a hero from a medieval Persian epic called the Book of Kings, which I understand you're very familiar with, having been born in Tehran and hearing tales from the Book of Kings from your parents when you were a kid. So I was hoping you could talk a bit about the mythic Zal, what drew you to him, and how you've adapted your own Zal after the myth.
1: Yeah, great question. Um, In the Book of Kings, you have so many stories. I mean, there's just... I want to say, hundreds of stories that you could pick from. It's a giant, giant book with 50,000 couplets in it. Um, so it wasn't like, you know, I, I think every Iranian knows, has a favorite, let's say, um, story from that epic. But um, Zal is a, is a pretty prominent figure. You know, he comes in and out of a few different stories. But for me, he was by and large my favorite um, because I was, you know, I encountered him when I was a young immigrant to this country and he had this sort of outsider narrative that sort of uh, culminated in a sort of optimistic grand finale. Um, he was basically a young feral child. He was uh, tossed out into the forest by his family, his royal family. And he was left to be raised by this giant bird, the Seymour, who's this great, mythical, benevolent bird of Persian legend with a wingspan that takes up the sky, you know, really, really kind of a grand and, and strange figure. And so he was raised in a forest and, and, you know, raised kind of wonderfully, better probably than if he had been raised by humans because he ended up having in some, some way almost a superhuman strength. He, he was very strong and he was later spotted. In the forest, um, by his uh, as his family, basically, and brought back to ancient Persia to become this great, you know, uh, warrior of, of the ancient Persian kingdom. So he was kind of brought back from his estrangement, essentially, and it all turned out quite well. So I loved the story. I thought it was both kind of, you know, magical. Obviously, the idea of a young young boy being raised by a bird, but the idea that it would turn out well. And that he could have it both ways and, ex- and exist in this supernatural realm of sorts, and then also go back into a sort of terrestrial world and still succeed—that kind—that of, really wowed me.
0: And so, Yorzal, the connection to birds for him—it's not a—it's not a place of strength. It is almost a, a something he's trying his whole life to overcome. And I, I wonder if maybe you could explain you know, why you went in that direction with the story, and, and maybe just tell a little bit about the plot of the story for listeners who, um, you know, who aren't familiar with, uh, with your book.
1: Sure. Um, so, you know, so th- there's the whole story of Zal from the Book of Kings that I always wanted to write about, but uh, several years ago, before I knew what my second novel was going to be, I encountered a, I think it was a Daily Mail article online that talked about this Russian bird boy case. Um, there was this young child that they had found in a rural area in Russia who was found chirping and it seemed that he had been raised to believe he was a bird and you know like all feral children's stories the news item you know came in and and out very quickly I mean people don't tend to pursue these stories very much because they either think they're hoaxes or there's just not much else other than the novelty of of the actual uh, story Um, so I encountered this and I realized there was this great connection to the mythic Zalb Um, And so I basically have a scenario very much like the Russian bird boy. I have Maizal is raised by a crazy uh, elderly woman who doesn't even know she could still have kids. He's the last of many, many children. And he's born in a rural village in Iran uh, around the time of the revolution, though that's very barely alluded to. Um, and so he is actually raised in bird cages in this kind of grand veranda that this older woman has, full of birds of all sorts. And she just adjusts his cage as he grows bigger and older. And he's discovered by one of his siblings who's heard a bit about what's gone on with her mother. And uh, she finds him at age 10 slumped in a terrible condition in this sort of bird cage cage. Um, and she rescues him and brings him back into the city, into Tehran. And he eventually becomes uh, quite famous, uh, like the bird boy of the Daily Mail article in a sense, but but more so. And uh, then gets rescued by a New York behavioral analyst who brings him to, to New York City. And then basically the plot... Really focuses on his coming of age in his twenties, um, and, and focuses on New York between Y two K to nine eleven.
0: And there's so many parts of the story that I think um, you know we could explore. One thing that comes to mind is just the very notion of of storytelling. I mean, your book was inspired by a classic book of stories, and for Zal, I mean, his identity is so wrapped up in this story of being a bird boy, and it's. For him, it seems you know everyone he meets. It's a question in his mind: Do they know who I am? That I'm the Bird Boy, and and he doesn't want to tell people that story. He wants to move on beyond it. He he seems to want more than anything to be you know quote unquote normal whatever whatever that means for him and for all of us who who want to be normal, um, so called. Exactly. And all those things maybe in some respects I guess tie tie together under the idea of being an immigrant coming to a new country you have your old story of who you are you have your new story who you, of who you want to be I wonder I mean was that I imagine that was a the theme you were exploring yourself being an immigrant
1: yeah I mean I think it, it, being an immigrant and in a sense almost feels like a metaphor for just a general state of outsiderness I think it's a Jean Reese quote where she says reading makes immigrants of us all um, but I think that the immigrant experience, while it feels so specific and alienating when you're going through it, in a sense, when you when you come of age, no matter who you are in the world, I think you still have this feeling of being outside what you perceive to be some sort of norm. I don't think any of us feels like okay, now we've come of age, now we're adults, now we're normal. Um, and and in fact, in, in the course of you know book touring and all that, I felt I was amazed by how many people related to the story who didn't have my immigrant background, who didn't have, you know, English as a second language. Um, I, I really was, was quite um, delighted, in a sense, to understand, you know, how universal the feeling of, of, of being an outsider is. So that was... I used a lot of different outsider modes. In that sense, I did borrow some things from speculative fiction, too, and I do have this kind of mythic backdrop um, because I wanted to constantly remove my story from any sort of um, norm in order to, to kind of address the thematics of
0: it. A lot of the um, emotions, of course, and I guess in any story, the emotions need to be true for people to relate to it. But I mean, there's a lot of sadness in the story. There's the childhood abuse. There's, you know, the very real issues of, of life in New York. I mean, 9-11 is a theme, which is hard to think of in any other way than like a real news event. But then, clearly, as you say, you were also deliberately incorporating mythical, fantastical elements.
1: Yeah, I mean, I wanted to take all the imaginative conceits here quite seriously. I wanted to use, I mean, realist modes um, in order to address the fabulism that you have here. I mean, my favorite sort of magical realism takes its its um, its conceits quite seriously. You know, there's never the feeling that this is fake. Um, so I, I hear my, my big challenge was to do a mythic retelling of a summer before nine eleven and not just a summer before nine eleven, but essentially Y two K to the summer before nine eleven. So I had to kind of reinvent this world. Well luckily what was great about the realism was that the realism was quite surreal. I mean, if you look at the the Y two K narrative, not to mention the nine eleven narrative, it's full of, of the magical, full of the fabulous, full of the Kind of impossible. The fact that you know we were so um, kind of seized by this kind of numerological terror and this belief that the numbers could bring us down and this sort of apocalyptic mythology um, in the air or in this period, it, it was it was sort of uh, perfect for me to want to, to kind of remove myself from what we could say is real. E- even while using, I guess, realism in a sense.
0: Well, I thought it was interesting that, you know, the few books I've read about 9-11 deal with the really the aftermath, the fictional books, uh, you know, what life is like afterwards for people. Uh, but you chose as you've explained, to do kind of a foreshadowing story. And I wonder why you chose to approach it from that direction in the in the years, months, days, and even seconds before the attack. Well, and, you know,
1: I should say, too, that I do use a lot of post-9-11 consciousness in the, the pre-9-11 narrative here. So there are things that sort of strategically I've placed a lot of post-9-11 paraphernalia that you wouldn't have really you know, if you're writing something before nine 11, you wouldn't really know to highlight certain things. Um, So a lot of paranoia is of our time. Now I went back and and placed in the, because I could, because I'm doing a mythic retelling, but yeah, for the most part, I really focused on this era leading up to the actual event. And I kind of enhanced what I felt to be a, a sort of organic foreshadowing that was in the air. Um, you can per- perhaps do that with any big event if you choose. You know, if you look at the timeline, any any given moment in history, if you look at the months leading up to it, you can make a case for, wow, there was a lot of tension in the air. Um, with, with 9-11, it was particularly interesting because I feel like people weren't, per- or, or my generation, didn't seem to be listening to the news as much as they are now. So we were missing a lot of things. A lot of us didn't know who Osama bin Laden was. A lot of us didn't really understand the workings of the Taliban. So, but we did right after, you know, very much so. So, there there was a lot I could do uh, play with the current events of that time, even like small things. Like that summer there was quite a lot of shark attacks. Um, all over the country, and I felt like shark attacks. You know, other the, their actual fact is not necessarily um, incredibly mesmerizing, but as a metaphor, of course, it's really interesting. Um, so I sort of enhanced the highlighted or enhanced some of the events surrounding that to build up the tension. Because pretty much when you pick up my book, you pretty much know from the beginning. I think that it's going to end in nine eleven. That's not a spoiler. Um, that was the big tightrope act I had sort of in front of me was how to write a book where you, you kind of know where it's going to end and how do you make that journey worthwhile for the reader. Um, so that that was, you know, I didn't want to pretend that that, that wasn't going to happen. My treatment of the event maybe isn't what people anticipate, but I I, I wanted them to know that this is about this finite period right before the period that we're all in right now the eternal post 9-11 era you know
0: and how did you come upon the idea of having um a magician as one of the central figures because the title the last illusion refers to this magician's ambition to do this amazing trick where he makes the twin towers you know quote-unquote disappear
1: yeah you know the, the the big um for me the the other part of the book what I consider the other half is really focused on Rand Silber who is my magician and and my illusionist here and his friendship with Zal was really what made the gave me the core of this book um and he you know talk about surreal and real again I mean he was inspired very much by David Copperfield and particularly uh, an act of David Copperfield that I was very mesmerized by as a young child happened to be the same period as a child that I was also very mesmerized by the Book of Kings. So there's this kind of memoiristic impulse behind the weaving of the two threads of the book. But uh, it in about 1983, David Copperfield had this really kind of magnificent Statue of Liberty disappearing act that was my first live telecast in America that I saw on television, you know, with my family and that really mesmerized me. I I loved it, but it also like perplexed me in that I didn't really understand the symbolism behind making the statue of Liberty disappear. As you know, I was a young immigrant and I was so focused on all symbols of America. And uh, I didn't really understand why you had an audience in New York applauding for the disappearance of the statue of Liberty, which to me kind of also seemed horrific And this really stayed with me. And of course, you know, decades later, I was able to access it on YouTube and and see it. And I got to read a little bit about it and I sort of figured out what he was doing. Um, And so in my head, just like I knew I would always write about the Zal of the Book of Kings at some point, I've always thought that I would probably write about David Copperfield's Statue of Liberty Disappearing Act. But You know, for me, the big event of my life was, of course, 9-11, and it's something I've written for years about um, through essays, and it's also figures in my first novel. Um, And so it was very easy for me to um, transfer the Statue of Liberty with the World Trade Center and to have this um, illusionist who, unlike David Copperfield, is, is, is embarking on his final illusion and... For me, that was going to be the, um, the, a World Trade Center disappearing act instead of Statue of Liberty. So that's, that's where 9-11 kind of comes in more tightly into the plot.
0: And can you talk a little bit about your experience with 9-11? I know you were living downtown yeah. in New York when it happened. I mean, maybe you can talk a little bit about how it's affected you and your interest in turning it into, into literature and weaving it into your, into your stories.
1: Yeah, um, I, you know, I, I was living not far from the World Trade downtown, and so I, I witnessed the thing, I mean, I witnessed the impact of the second plane, and then, you know, just watched the two buildings collapse right in front of my eyes, I had a I had perfect view and in, in this one high-rise that I lived in downtown, and uh, very, very soon realized that this was going to be the, um, the biggest event of my life. Um, and that it was going to be a big subject that I would end up writing about. I don't know how it wouldn't. I mean, as a creative person, too, the sheer spectacle of it, it's hard to top. Um, I, I, you know, experienced quite a lot of post-traumatic stress from it. I still think about it constantly, um, much more so than I think a lot of people who didn't witness it firsthand. So it became a big subject for me. I mean a subject for me in, in several different ways. You know, one is as a New Yorker. One is just as an American. One is as a Middle Eastern American, you know, which, of course, complicates things a little bit. So having all these different ways of seeing the event um, also just, you know, made it interesting to, for me to write about both in a nonfiction sense, but also with my fiction, too. It's hard to write about the world that we're in today and ignore that 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 reality, and and of course again this impulse to want to go into the fabulist or the magical realist. I mean, how could I again not be sort of tempted by nine eleven in that sense? Uh, not only was the event so surreal, but the way in which it's altered our lives today. I mean, think about. There's all sorts of things that we do, even ritualistically, that are quite surreal. We've now become used to taking off our shoes when we go on airplanes or um, getting rid of liquids or, you know, all sorts of things around flying or all sorts of ways in which we think about the sky or all sorts of issues of security and, and, and privacy. These are all, you know... It provide quite a lot of fodder for, for I think, uh, a creative person, uh, not to mention a, 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 just a human who's living in kind of tense and trying times, I guess.
0: It's true. I mean, and, and the whole world has been affected. I mean, there are whole movements uh, that we know of. They know changes in the Middle East as a result of the, the wars that we started or that you know, were started after 9-11 right. that have changed millions, literally millions of people's lives.
1: I mean, you're going to probably see, I think, a lot of literature, you know, surrounding the Islamic State and ISIS. I mean, think about how, how so surreal, like, video game characters those guys are. I mean, not to diminish their actual atrocities that they're capable of, but just their presence as characters. I mean, just uh it, they're just like comic book villains and, and in fact they take cues from that they take cues from pop culture and literature and art um and how they sort of spread their terror so god you know talk about speculative fiction I and mean, what a time for that when when you know the our own reality our very much you know mainstream reality is leans more towards you know that other world than, than maybe where we were before, what our conception of like normal life was.
0: You know, I think so much of our uh, of literature. There's so much talk about you know having more diverse voices, and that's a subject that's come up with science fiction and fantasy as well as all mainstream literature. And one thing that really strikes me, and you mentioned it, is you having been you know uh, someone who had been born in the Middle East and then writing about nine eleven, which you know, is so fraught with potential jingoism and it seems very important that there be a whole spectrum of voices responding and talking about 9-11 and our response to it and how it's impacted our culture. And I suppose, I imagine that you you share that view as well. I just wonder how your editors responded or if they're people, readers or or critics, or if you personally had any trepidation about being a Muslim American, but writing about 9-11 in, in this way and in, in the way that you've chosen to do it.
1: Well, there was always the taboo in the literary world almost immediately after when you saw the first batch of books about 9-11. I think they were somewhere around 2003. And there's this, always this idea of too soon. People were always constantly saying too soon. Sorry, my dog is overreacting. It's someone at the door. Um, anyways, there's this constant feeling of things being too soon. And, um, but, but I think a, a, as a creative person, I, I just have to ignore that. And in, as obviously as a journalist, I have to ignore that. And in fact, I've said at times that people should ignore the fact that I was a witness to the event, just like I think they could ignore the fact that I'm even Middle Eastern. I mean, it's a story that the whole world has in common. I get very frustrated when I hear people say things like, well, but more people died in this war, or "or things are harder in this part of the world. Well, that's true, but it's it's impossible to deny that this particular event in world history has um, altered the entire globe um, more so than any event in current history. So it, it's a story that everybody has. I'm, I'm kind of amazed when I meet people who somehow have deluded themselves into believing that it didn't really affect them or that the event wasn't that big a deal in their life maybe the actual day of wasn't but their their lives have completely been altered even just economically i mean anyone who has a job today has been affected by it so it's it's it i feel that like it's a it's an event we all share and so that sort of trepidation about that maybe publishers had i mean I have to admit, it took over uh, two and a half years or something to sell this book, whereas my first book took only a few months, and and I I believe this book is stronger. That that trepidation, I'm sure, is about this concept of, yeah, a mythic retelling of 9-11. If I'd done a purely realist take from, say, a Middle Eastern woman's perspective, my, my guess is it would have been sold, it would have sold faster, but this idea that I was using a fabulous mode, you know, a sort of speculative mode, and addressing this kind of sensitive world event, and then add to the fact that here I am, you know, you know, a brown person (laughs) addressing this. Um, That caused, I think, some complications, though, of course, you know, I was writing so many essays about it, that people knew me as a sort of chronicler of the event in some sense. But but I do think, sure, there is there is a little bit of that pushback. But there's so many pushbacks for artists in so many senses, anyways. That it's it, one has to just ignore it and and uh, just keep to their vision. And 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 I didn't I didn't write this assuming that I was going to have like a bestseller or an audience all over the world. I didn't think this is a book that's for everyone. I'm, I've actually been quite surprised by what a diverse group of people have responded to it. Um, And that's been a great joy. But um, I'm sure for some people, you know, they don't want to read anything about 9-11. They don't want to touch it. They want to move on from it or, or sort of pretend that it's not a constant presence in their life. But I don't know. I don't know how you can really do that.
0: Well, I think this is an important contribution to the to the literature, as you say, that has been emerging and probably will continue to emerge from now until, you know, till forever, I suppose.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and there was one other thing I wanted to ask you about. Uh, you know, there's a lot of sadness in this book, and I read an essay you wrote, I think it was a couple of years ago, where you talked candidly about your own experience, and I think it was after the publication of your first book, but your own experience with depression, Mm-hmm. And, and I was wondering how that, that dark period, your own personal dark period, informed some of the darkness uh, in this book. I, I can't imagine that, you know, you could have written this book without having gone through that uh, that difficult time.
1: Yeah, the book was written in a period of time that, that you know, this, this, the, the, the years around it were years where I was very ill, and also I was very, very depressed and anxious, so... And it's funny, um, you know, the, the creation of this book came out of quite a lot of pain, though, though I would also emphasize that there's quite a lot of humor in it, too, but dark humor. And, and that humor and the dark humor is, what, that is sort of my own world, world view. I mean, that, that's what got me out of a lot of the um, darkness. Um, so, but but it, a lot of it was also tied to, to physical illness, um, which for me was Lyme disease. So it was very interesting for me to be writing about a, a, a protagonist who has had these incredible physical setbacks that had emotional consequences while I myself was going through it. And I was misdiagnosed and undiagnosed and eventually diagnosed, but not until really the book was being published. So maybe that, that kind of informed a sort of surrealness of the, of the universe too, but I, I, for instance, knew, and I don't think this is a spoiler, but, I'm, you know, I'm saying that the end basically is 9-11, but there's also a sort of hidden happy ending within that, too. And I really needed this book to have some sort of joy at the end of it, because I felt that I was struggling so hard while I was writing it. That if it didn't, if, if, if Maizal didn't get some sort of happy ending that I couldn't, I mean, I, I identified with him so much while I was writing it. I don't think I've ever written a character that I identified with more, um, even though he seemingly seems like my opposite in every sense from visual to like, you know, circumstantial. But, but he's, he's really me in so many ways. Um, so I, I knew that both humor and some light at the end had to be there because yeah it, it did feel like you know there was just in order to tell the story properly and to be faithful to it i had to grapple with all the darkness and 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 the darkness it's hard to d- not see it you know if you're looking at especially a uh, y2k through 9-11 era stuff and and like i said a lot of the post 9-11 era um stuff that i the, went back and put into it
0: well, so um, what are you working on now? Are you, are you working on another book? Are you focusing on your essays?
1: Well, I'm, I'm always writing essays, so that's always happening. But I'm actually in California right now because I'm, I'm kind of going back the setting of, of a lot of my Lyme disease disintegration. So my third book that we just sold a few months ago uh, to Harper Perennial is a, a memoir of late-stage Lyme disease. Wow. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of back where I kind of disintegrated. And uh, I'm doing some research and just and just writing a lot of that this summer to, you know, to turn in on time. But yeah, that's that's the next thing for me. And I I do have a fourth book, which is my third novel that I I kind of have in the works, too. But that that's going to take longer, I think.
0: So you're one of those writers who works through her stuff, through her storytelling, as opposed to someone, and maybe there aren't—is no such thing, but as a writer who just wants to push all that stuff aside and not think about it. I, I may, maybe they don't exist.
1: I think they may maybe exist. I mean, just like readers who really like to read just for escape, I suppose there's writers who like to write just for escape. But it seems so tricky to be such an expert compartmentalizer that you could do that. I mean, I, I feel really strongly that I'd be one of those people who really couldn't really comfortably stay alive with that writing. So I always have to confront the hard things um, in order to make sense of them. And that, that to me is the great function of writing and the great function of literature is to make meaning out of things that might not otherwise have a sort of meaningful narrative. Um, it helps organize I think our sense of, of of the stories that we're made of and the stories outside of so I, I have to I have to do it um, that way otherwise I'm not sure what what I would be left with
0: and hopefully writers you know are performing a service hopefully to other people who are struggling trying to articulate their own experiences and when you write about Lyme disease and I'm sure lots of people with both that and other illnesses that they've struggled with and perhaps undiagnosed and there's a lot they can relate to so
1: yeah absolutely though it's funny even with the last illusion i've been so amazed by how many people you know even with fiction and a story like this that you just don't think people would would say wow this helped me i've been amazed by by the response and people who have felt in so many different ways marginalized, coming to me writing uh, or meeting me at readings and saying that, you know, that helped them work through all sorts of issues. So it's funny. I mean, you can have, you know, in a way Lyme disease in itself can be used as a metaphor for so many different um, ailments. But I was kind of amazed that my my bird boy here in this mythic setting could still uh, create an opportunity for connection with people.
0: Well, I wish you the best of luck with your future work and, you know, with The Last Illusion. And I really uh thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
0: I've been talking with Porachista Kakpor about her novel The Last Illusion. The paperback came out this year from Bloomsbury. And I invite you to check out my interviews with other authors on the podcast website www.newbooksinsciencefiction.com and to subscribe on iTunes or other podcasting sites. Uh, we've got a Facebook page and we tweet at New Book Sci-Fi. I tweet personally at Rob Wolf Books. And my own Sci-Fi books, The Alternate Universe and The Escape are on Amazon. Our low- The is by Michael Thibodeau. Theme music by Michael Aaron. The editor of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe. On upcoming shows, I'll be speaking with some contributors to a collection of science fiction short stories out of Sweden. And also to James Cambius, whose new book, Corsair, came out in May from Tor. I spoke with James last year about his first book, The Darkling Sea, and I loved it. And I'm really looking forward to being dazzled by Corsair as well. Bye for now, and thanks for listening.